the resurrection <clears throat> for those of us who have trusted in Christ is not only our guarantee in the distant future, but it is the key to a transformed life in the here and now. So today we are starting a four-part series called A Better Way, which will hopefully unpack how the resurrection really does reorder our lives. As one writer said, you can take your life into your own hands, but it won't turn out well. The key to a real life is surrendering your life to the rule of another, and the resurrection tells us who that another is. Now, I want to say real quickly this morning that I know there's really three different kind of people here. There are serious Christ followers, there are nominal Christians, and there are non-Christians. Somebody invited you or pestered you to come, and you came with them this morning. And I want to say to everyone in those three categories, we're delighted you're here. And I hope that this message, I think this message will have something to say to all of those different folks. But as believers in Christ, we are here because we believe that Jesus Christ literally and physically resurrected from the dead. We don't think it was an analogy, sort of like, well, Christ got up when he was down, so then we can get up when we're down. No, we believe Jesus Christ was literally murdered on a cross, was in the grave from Friday afternoon till Sunday morning, and then physically resurrected from the grave. We think every person has to wrestle with that. Did Jesus Christ raise from the dead? And if he did, what do I do with that? We believe the resurrection demands a response. Now, I don't have time this morning to to prove to you biblically and historically or give you the evidence of the resurrection, something I love to do, something we've done before. But I do want to point you this morning, especially those folks who are in the nominal Christian or non-Christian category, I want to point you to two resources this morning that are phenomenal. One is called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell, and the other is called The Case for Christ. Now, What's interesting about these people is both of them were atheists. And over 30 years ago, they sought to disprove that Christ rose from the dead. They spent years researching historically and biblically. And in the process, both of them came to, to wrestle with in such a way that they came to faith in Christ. And they spent the last 30 years telling others about Christ. So I would encourage you to engage those resources. Tim Keller puts it this way. <clears throat> he says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue in which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he actually rose from the dead. We know the Apostle Paul, probably the most famous Christian there is, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, besides Jesus himself, Paul was a persecutor of the church until he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and, and was converted, became a Christ follower. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ did not rise, 
those who place their faith in him, it's in vain that we are to be most pitied. He said, if Christ did not rise, he said, then eat and drink and live it up and die and let your body go into the ground and become worm food. He didn't say that, but basically what he, what he said is you, you die and that's it. But he says, if he did raise from the dead, <clears throat> then that changes everything. <clears throat> I love how Dr. Paul Mayer, uh, historian, histor history professor and Harvard grad put it. He said, the total evidence is so overpowering, so absolute that only the shallowest of intellects would dare to deny the resurrection of Jesus. So whatever you, your category you're in, those are, those are worthy things to think about. And if Jesus rose from the dead, what it says to us as Christ's followers is that the resurrection radically changes everything. And so this morning, if you have your notes, <clears throat> I put our text, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in your notes, and it comes from the message by Eugene Peterson. Message is simply a translation that's a little more down to earth and real English sort of talks like we talk here in Middle Tennessee. So let me read our text for us this morning. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, as he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent. There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent barrel and get on with your new life. Great God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurous, expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is. We know who we are, father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us an unbelievable inheritance. That in itself is a sermon. <clears throat> Romans 8. It's one of the most important chapters in the Bible for several reasons. One reason is that it mentions the Holy Spirit 20 times, 15 times alone in verses 5 through 17. And because in Romans 8 9, it gives one of the clearest statements in all of the Bible concerning what does it mean to be a Christian, defining what a Christian is. Paul puts it this way. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him or does not belong to Christ. 
A Christian is a person who has the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in them. At the moment of salvation, at the moment that you place your trust in the shed blood of Christ by faith alone and Christ alone for salvation alone, the scripture tells us that the Spirit of God comes to indwell us. And that is what makes you a Christian. It's not going to church. Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a cheeseburger. Neither coming to a church makes you a Christian. Paul defines that for us here. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to pay attention to Romans 8, the passage I read, to this densely rich and encouraging passage about what happens to a person once they come to Christ, once the Spirit of God comes to indwell them and make them a believer. And I can't, I can't teach this in detail. I don't have time. But let me, let me give you the overwhelming nuggets of this scripture. He says in Romans 8, you were once dead and now you are alive in Christ. You were once did not belong to God. Now you do belong to God. You once were defined by your sin and now you're defined by your righteousness because of God's spirit living in you. You once were going to be raised to eternity without God and now you're going to be raised to an eternity with God. You once lived for what your flesh felt like doing. Now you have the power to live for what honors God and what is good for you. Once were an orphan and now an adopted son or daughter of the living God. You once had no one to cry out to for help. And now at any time you can cry out to your heavenly father that created you and knows you better than you know yourself. You were once alone in the world and now the Holy Spirit speaks to you and confirms that you were his. You once had no spiritual inheritance and now we are rich in Christ and our future is secure with him. Here's what I want to encourage us to do this morning. If you are a Christ follower, the, the, the scriptures, Paul does it throughout, Romans 8 does it profoundly. It tells us, exhorts us, encourages us, start here. Start right here. This redefines everything. Yes, I know you feel shame. Yes, I know you struggle with sin. Yes, I know because I do. I know you fall down and skin your knee. I know that. Paul says, though, this is the starting place for every person who has placed their trust in Christ. This is who you are. Mind-boggling. It is the same spirit the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the Spirit of the God the Father, the Spirit of God the Son, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says, has radically redefined everything about you at the moment you came to faith in Christ instantaneously. Redefined everything about how God deals with you. Redefines everything about who you are and whose you are. About your future, redefines everything about your here and now. 
every identity, matter of fact, that you have used or would use to describe who you are and whose you are pales in comparison to this new identity in Christ that God has given you because he now lives in you. Your CEO pales in comparison. You have a stature of money, of power. You're the mother of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the son and daughter of so-and-so. You're athletic, you're beautiful, you're smart. You're a certain color, certain ethnicity. Paul says, all of that pales in comparison to you being in Christ. Start there. It's why the Bible is full of exhortations to get in step with this spirit. Verse 4 of Romans 8, walk according to the spirit. Verse 5, live to the spirit. Verse 6, set your mind on the spirit. Verse 14, be led by the spirit. Matter of fact, my three word, favorite three-word description of what Christianity is comes from Romans 6, 11. Alive to God. That's what a Christian is. The resurrection is proof stamped on every believer's ticket that they are alive to God. The resurrection of Christ, if you know him, redefines everything about you. And if it redefines everything about you, then God wants that redefinition to be lived out in a way that honors Christ. So what would it look like for us to live the resurrection in everyday life? <clears throat> As believers in Christ, just knowing those things that Paul listed in Romans 8 is the starting place, not the finish line. We must put into practice habits of the heart. Pay attention here. That actually change our spiritual growth from a wish list, something we wish would happen, to something that's actually able to happen. From a wish list to reality, to be able to live a life to the glory of God. We need to, as Eugene Peterson says, learn to practice the resurrection. How about that phrase? Practice the resurrection because the resurrection is the very thing that provides the energy, he says, and conditions and the ability by which we live out Psalm 116.9. That says to walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Our self-help, do-it-yourself culture doesn't really give way to the best thing, the resurrection, the thing that actually redefined us. So we ask this question, how is it that we live appropriately and responsively in a world where Christ is risen? It is with this, this is so crucial. It is with this sense of wonder and astonishment and awe and maybe even surprise that God has worked and God is working in you and in me because of Jesus living in us through the resurrection. 
that this wonder that, that God has worked in the sense that I didn't know God and God came after me and he unblinded me and he softened my heart and I heard the gospel. God has worked to bring me to himself and now at that moment I came to know him. He indwelled me with his spirit and now he is working. Philippians 6 says he will complete the work that he began you at the time of Christ Jesus. So God has worked and he is working in us. Through his resurrection spirit. So here's what happens. When we lose that wonder. When we lose that amazement. When that, what I just described, that he has and is working in us. The living God of the universe. Living in us. Working in us. Changing us to the image of his beloved son. When that loses this wonder. The Christian life becomes rule oriented. Drudgery depersonalized, distant. So it starts there, the sense of wonder. And the first thing, under that umbrella of wonder of God had, had worked and is working, we look at pardon. Pardon. Which produces joy. So every day, we get up, we put our feet on the floor, to begin our day, you and I are walking into a world that is trying to seduce us away from this radical new life in Christ. Do you feel that if you're a Christ follower? And then, so that's an external problem. Now we have an internal problem and it's our own hearts. Because in our own hearts, we've realized what it means to be a Christian. Someone put it this way. It is to have a quiet war inside of yourself at all times. Can you identify with that? So we got an external problem. We got an internal problem because before you came to Christ, there was no war. You just sort of felt it. And if you looked around and get away with it, you did it. But you come to Jesus and now there's this fight going on between your flesh and the spirit of Christ living in you. So both of those sort of coming at us can be overwhelming. But then we can say, this is what Paul's saying here in Romans 8, we can say, good morning, Lord. My sins are ever before me. My sins are legitimate. And they needed to be completely handled by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The bill for my sin has been paid in full. My sins have been forgiving, past, present, and future, all at once taken care of. The psalmist says, your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Oh, Lord, you have made a way. You've made a way to deal with my sins that's not built upon my effort. On my being good, the resurrection is evidence that what occurred on Friday was the glad absorption of all of God's wrath toward those who would trust him. And as Paul said in Romans 8, 1, 
There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemning for those who are in Christ. And Paul says that after at the end of chapter 7, if you'll read, where he speaks of his own getting up in the morning moment and seeing his own sin where he says, I don't do what I wanted to do, and I do exactly what I don't want to do. And his frustration with his own sin He immediately goes to pardon to experience the joy of Christ. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is a great model for us. Someone said we cannot outsend the cross. If we could, we would not be celebrating Easter and Jesus would still be in the ground. And we practice this daily reality of our pardon in Christ. We practice this resurrection and we experience deep joy. Later on in Luke, Jesus says to his disciples, don't rejoice that you can send demons out of people. Don't rejoice about anything else. Here's what you rejoice over. Here's, here is what, your, why your joy can never be robbed no matter the circumstances you're in, disciples. You rejoice because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You've been pardoned. Secondly, as power, which produces the ability for you and I to repent and believe. The reality of God's spirit living inside of us gives us the power to become more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit, it's called sanctification, wants to accomplish an actual and increasing holiness in our lives. Verse 13, Paul says in Romans 8, to actually put to death, this is a command, put to death the deeds of the body or the deeds of the flesh. It is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does this sin-killing work in us. John Owen, crazy, but he did, wrote an 86-page paper on Romans 8, 13. (laughs) Go read that and get a little sin-killing theology. It's so crucial, though, for us to take these deeds of the body or deeds of the flesh, things like any deeds or words or thoughts we are prompted to do by our sinful bodies, pride, rage, bitterness, impatience, greed, sexual sin, you name it. We take those, and verses 14 through 16 Paul tells us that it is the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that comes to us, to the believer, and here's what he does. He reminds us of our new identity. He tells us who we are. He bears witness on our mind and hearts that you are now a child of the living God. You're an heir in Christ, and in doing so, this will aid you to act in line according to your new identity. That's not you anymore. This is who you are. Now, very practically, let me just give you a very practical illustration that God gave me this week with me and my wife. So, one of the, one of the how do I put this, one of the preacher's tough things in a preacher's life is you're studying the Bible and you get in a little twisted manner with your wife, right? Like I'm studying the resurrection and me and Jenna are sort of like it wasn't, it was, it was, this is how I would describe it. Like, 
like, she just drives me crazy sometimes, right? And she's failing toward me. Oh, he just drives me crazy. I'm like, how can I do that? I don't understand. <laughs> Sarcasm. So we have this moment. I'm studying about the resurrection. And my temptation is to isolate from her, to not call her, to make her feel emotional pain by not addressing this and reconciling and calling her. Ever felt tempted like that with your spouse? Yeah. Just boop, shut it down. Knowing that would get to her. And the Lord said, bro, that's not who you are. You're my son. I've done a great work in your life. P.S. You speak for family life, boy. <laughs> you know, and all kind of little things going through my head. So I picked up the phone and I said, I didn't want to call you, but the Lord's prompting me to call you. Will you come to the office so we can talk? And we talked for an hour. And here's what we did. We repented and believed. We repented of our sin and hurt toward each other. And we believe what God has said is true versus how we were feeling toward one another at the time. That's difficult, but it's not tragic. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to do what he says, to become Christ-like, even though it's hard but here's what would be tragic. Tragic is to not deal with that and let it build up and ruin the next 20 years of our marriage. That's the only, only way most people can deal with their stuff. Thirdly, presence brings peace. When Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, that word dwell is very significant. It does not mean the Spirit of God just happens to be there or comes for a visit. It means he takes up residence in your life, that he has moved into a new home, and that new home is you and me. Jesus put it this way in John 14. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Can't receive it if you're not a Christian, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And here's the implication to that. You and I are never alone. Now, we may feel alone, <laughs> Right? You're felt alone? Aloneness is a huge pain of the heart. But the reality is, and doesn't mean we don't need people. This isn't a cop-out for you not to need people. But it says, Christ is saying, I am with you. You are never alone. You're never outside of my presence. I love how Brother Lawrence in his book, Practicing the Presence of God, puts it. He says, the king, full of mercy and goodness, very far from chastising me, embraces me with love, makes me eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, gives me the keys of his treasure, converses, delights himself with me, and treats me in all respects as his favorite. It is why I recognize God intimately present with me at all times. Where he started had something to do with how he experienced the presence of God. He started with his identity in Christ.
And then there's prayer, which brings dependence. The death of Christ removed the veil, as Monty talked about Friday night, or the blockage between us and Christ. And the resurrection and an indwelling spirit of Christ gives you and I 24-7 access to the throne room of the living God. And in that, in prayer, we learn to speak to our great God and we learn to speak about his greatness. That you and I is amazing that we have a high and holy priest who is also transcendent, who has empathy and sympathy and understands our infirmities and our weaknesses. We have a God we don't have to get dressed up to address. He knows my words before they come out of my mouth, and yet somehow he wants to hear them from me. There's a natural cry from every human, from the human heart, like a child searching for answers because God has set eternity in man's heart to seek him. God has made a way for us to seek him. Even the non-Christian on a golf course, think about it, cries out to God. Let that one sink in. So, but when we come to know Christ and the spirit enables us to cry, Paul says, out to Abba Father, and this is what separates us from a believing world. We are not the master of our own fate and we don't have to be because we can depend on a God who bled for us. Lord, here's our prayer. We do not know what to do, but we do know you. Help us. Calvin put it this way. God is too kind to be cruel and too wise to make mistakes. His delays are purposeful and we'll understand everything when we see him face to face. Prayer brings dependence. And then lastly, priority brings a reorder to our lives. The resurrection says to us, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's totally different than the kingdom of this world. And those who are part of that kingdom of God must reorder and reprioritize their whole life around this. That's what it says. The resurrection demands our response from God's people. So here's what we're going to do in the next three weeks. And whatever category or people you're in, believer, nominal Christian, or non-Christian, I want to invite you back. Invite you back to hear how the resurrection actually reorders some of the most crucial things in our lives, our relationships, our resources, our time, talent, and treasure, and how we view rewards. The resurrection demands a response. As a country boy, I like the saying, life, because of the resurrection, life ain't the same no more. <laughs> Take a minute this morning to ask the question, so what?